I'm Lara Barrera, and welcome to the 13th episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Lessons from 55 Years of No-Tilling, is being brought to you by Copperhead Ag. If this is your first time joining us, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Copperhead Egg, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spike Closing Wheel, for sponsoring today's episode. Finally, there is one closing wheel for all of your acres. The Furrow Cruiser has a unique combination of aggressiveness and control that allows it to win yield trials in all conditions. These wheels are the real deal. They will not plug up on you, and the poly material they are made from stands up to heavy abuse. In fact, it's so strong they give it a lifetime guarantee against breakage. If you want to finally have all your furrows closed right, get the most even emergence out of your crop, and have a closing wheel that has proven to pay for itself in the first season, then visit copperheadag.com today. You can check out their research page to see for yourself how these wheels are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code PODCAST at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code PODCAST at copperheadag.com. In 1962, no-till history was made. That was the year Kentucky farmer Harry Young planted the first commercial no-till field. Today, Harry's son John and grandson Alex manage the farm, and this year will be the 56th year of continuous no-till on that field. In this episode, which comes from the 2017 National No-Tillage Conference, John and Alex will reflect back on those early days of no-till, some of the changes they've experienced over the years, and the challenges they're currently working through. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Copperhead Ag, we welcome John and Alex Young to share the lessons they've learned from the first 55 years of no-tilling. Well, good morning to you. We personally are here, Al and I are here, basically to get the subject introduced. Um, I'm not here because I'm so smart, because a lot of you guys are probably smarter than I am. You may be better businessmen than I am. Some of you are better looking. Not many of you, but some of you (laughs) are probably better looking than I am. I'm here because of seniority. Um, 55 years ago, my dad, Harry Young, was the first farmer to plant a field of no-till anything using modern no-till technology. It was modern at that time. 1962 was the year that he planted that first crop. But I know with 100% certainty that if he were here today, he would want to point out the fact that he was not the first one to think of that idea. Just like Daniel Boone was a pioneer in finding Kentucky, somebody had to tell him that there was a Kentucky. That man's name was John Finley. Well, the same thing was true with my dad, Harry Young, even though he was the first no-till farmer. Um, In 1961, he learned of that idea from a gentleman in Dixon Springs, Illinois. You probably know the name George McKibben, and if you don't, you should. And even before his time in introducing no-tillage in southern Illinois, there was a fellow in Georgia 
Channing Cope. His idea was to control erosion and to somehow make farming profitable without the use of the plow. And then before he was around, or at least before his book was published, there was a gentleman named Edward Faulkner. You probably know that name, or at least I hope you do. He wrote a book called Plowman's Folly. Actually, at the end of our presentation, uh, we're going to eliminate everybody in here except two people. And I have actually two copies of that book, that classic book, Plowman's Folly, that I would like to get into your hands. I read it myself several times, don't agree with all of it, neither will you. But that's just the way we are here. If any one of us thinks exactly alike, one of us is not needed. We will think about a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. And if I visited with you, you may very well have ideas that are better than mine. And I might stumble across one myself that would be better than yours. You know the old saying, even a blind dog finds a bone now and then. My dad, back in 1962, when he planted that first crop of no-till, uh, was exemplifying the two traits that are necessary to be an inventor. I suspect you guys have those same two traits. The idea for these two traits comes from Thomas Edison, one of the best inventors in the United States, possibly in the world. He said you only need two things to be a good inventor. One is a good imagination, and the other one is a pile of junk. Now you've got probably both of those things, and I know some of you do because there are inventions here on display at this conference that are quite a bit better than what my dad started with back in 1962. This is a picture of the original no-till planter. It's kind of like looking at the Wright Brothers aircraft versus a 747 or one of these new, um, oh, who knows what, all the, the new stuff going on now. But you'll notice some things that are the same and you'll notice some things that are different in this picture. You'll notice that there's a plow coulter up front. Does anybody know what kind of tractor this is that's being used? Anybody recognize that? International 140. That was a tobacco tractor. Until no tillage came into being, our area in southwestern Kentucky was basically cattle and tobacco. There were a few acres of crop, but they were not the cash crop. We have now become part of the corn belt or the bean belt, depending on which way you want to call it. But those coulters up front were good to have. Right back behind that is what was a two-row mule-drawn planter that was pulled out of the fence row right after my dad went to hear Dr. McKibben talk. Came back home and said, I think I can do that. We didn't even have a welder in 1962. We had to go to the one welder in the community. It was called Rob's Shop. And everybody took their welding project to Rob's Shop. So he went down and explained what he wanted to have done. He got it welded, put together, mounted on the back of this 140 tractor. And what is the old saying? The rest is history. You'll also notice that back behind where the furrows are made, there's not even any disc openers. Back behind that, the press wheel is rather lacking. That's not the kind of press wheel I would use. In fact, we got to experiment. Maybe I'll have time to tell that later. Um, this past year, we had a tractor burn up and a, and a planter burn up, 
and we got to do all kinds of neat things. Well, it wasn't neat at the time, Al, but anyway, it was something to behold. So that's a picture of the very first one, 1962. These are pictures of people just like you and me visiting the farm, trying to find out what in the world that crazy man was doing over there, and lots and lots of people. Until two months ago, I didn't even know this picture, and the next two pictures were in existence. This is a picture of the, of the county agent, extension agent, Reeves Davey, examining the very first no-till crop of corn, 1962, which is right across the field for where my son Al now lives. Same farm, and it's still been in it, by the way, for the last 55 years. So if anybody asks you the question, does it work, the answer is, Yep, <laughs> it does work. In fact, I made a whole list of crops that we have planted. It, it covered a whole page. So rather than read that to you, I would guess the best thing to do is to ask the question, where does it not work? I know of three places where no-till will not work. It will not work if somebody has been dumb enough to erode the ground down to bedrock. You cannot plant no-till in bedrock. I have never been able to make it work in standing water. Now, I've planted through some standing water, <laughs> not by choice, but because you've got a little pocket here and a pocket there and the rest of the field is fine, it doesn't come up very well. The third place that will not work, at least in my experience, is when there's snow and ice still on the ground. I haven't, I haven't been able to make that work. Maybe someday we will, I don't know. But this was the very first field. There it is. By the way, these pictures appeared in the 1962 version, the fall edition of the Kentucky Farmer. It was a statewide publication. This is the first no-till crop in that um, year and in that location. And you can see the notation under there. The only thing they had, by the way, to kill weeds was 2,4-D if you got it on early enough and atrazine. That's all they had. Atrazine had not been out all that long at the time, and Paraquat, if it had been invented, it was still in California being used to, to scorch the, the areas under fruit trees. And it's an interesting story how my dad got that into Kentucky, but it probably will have to wait for another time. This is a picture of my dad and my uncle just before corn harvest, or as the corn, you can see the corn's a lot different now than it was then. They thought tall corn in 40-inch rows was the way to go. 40-inch rows, I'm told, was set because that was the exact width of the rear end of a mule. And when you could cultivate between the rows, a 40-inch row was the way to plant. We have since narrowed that down, and we've tried 30s and 20s and 15s, and I'm sure you guys have done the same thing. Now, this picture of the two young brothers, my dad's on the right, my uncle Lawrence is on the left, also brings up an interesting point about differences of opinion. Remember I talked to you about differences of opinion. Yours will be different than mine. We can try different things and we can probably arrive at a successful conclusion at the end of that. My uncle did not think no-till was a good idea. In fact, he was dead set against it. He went down to the store and he would tell how his brother was crazy. <laughs> and he didn't want to try it anymore. But my dad was enough of a believer in this idea, as you are as well, that he pressed on. He convinced those who had to be convinced. He even ended up writing a book with Dr. Phillips, another book with another gentleman. And he was a strong-willed man. 
And he was a whole lot smarter than I am, by the way, so I'm here on his behalf, not on my behalf. But that was the beginning of no tillage. The next year, Dr. Shirley Phillips came down from the University of Kentucky to do some test plots. Some of these plots, as you can see, were for herbicides, different things that were being um, introduced for the types of disc openers, for the types of closing wheels, for the types of crops that could be grown. This is my dad going through with a one-row hand-pushed planter. As we went through the years, I'm sure many of you have been familiar with this kind of planters. Alice Chalmers was the first one to come out with a usable, workable, marketable no-till planter. The little red boxes in the front were used for insecticide. We haven't used insecticide in the row for a long, long time, but back then we were doing that. You can also see that the bigger the boxes where the seed went in uh, was a good idea. The double coulters in the front had to have something to get it through the straw. This is double crop soybeans being planted, of course. Um, eventually, a six-row planter just wasn't big enough. So um, my wife and I went to the Quad Cities area, picked up a hitch to hook two of them together. At, I think it was an international hitch to hook two Alice Chalmers planters together. You know how that kind of thing goes. Everything gets bigger and better and more expensive. These are the old style markers. Anybody ever use one of those? Raise your hand if you ever used it. Yeah, we've got some using those kind of markers. And you guys are the baby boomers, I know. You know the difference between a baby boomer and a millennial, don't you? When a, when a baby boomer pulls into an irregularly shaped field, you do the end rows, and then you have a few passes out in the middle of it, and you say, I wonder if I could get by with just driving this manually, or am I going to have to set up AB lines for my GPS? Right? <laughs> I do the same thing. The millennials will pull into that same irregularly shaped field. They'll do the end rows, and they'll say, I wonder if I can get by with setting up AB lines, or if I'm going to have to drive this thing manually. It's just backwards. <laughs> I went deer hunting last November, and I stepped off the distance to the, where I shot the deer. It was 105 yards. I was talking with a millennial who had also gone deer hunting, and I said, well, mine stepped off 105. How far away were you? He said, well, my Google Maps said it was 95 yards. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not making that up. All right, enough of that. Our wheat back in those days made 40 to 50 bushels an acre. The corn was making about 95 to 100 bushels an acre. I forgot to tell you that in that first year when my dad and my uncle did no tillage, they had a total corn acreage of 94 acres. My son Al and I now farm just over 2,000 of corn plus 2,000 of wheat, 2,000 of beans. So things have changed a lot since then. And the yields, thankfully, have increased even though the prices haven't. Okay, when were these beans planted? Were they 1962 or were they 2016? Beans, at least double crop beans, look a lot the same now that they did then. The varieties are different. A lot of improvements have been made on the planting, but if you get a good stand, you've done a good job no matter what year it is. This slide is to tell you that there, we have tried a lot of things through the years, most of which didn't work very well. We have tried a few things that worked very well. In the middle of the 1970s, I was fully convinced that this was the future of farming to get a swather, to put the wheat in a windrow to the side of the planter, to plant in between, come back and pick up the wheat, and you can get a jump start on the year in double cropping anyway by those beans that are planted in between the windrows. Well, the thing that got in the way was Mother Nature. We have a lot of rain in Kentucky in June, 
And those windrows can sit there and get rather foul by the time the combine comes back through. So even though we bought a swather, and I did my dead level best to make it work, we finally had to sell the thing. And we go back to the regular combine and plant after the combine kind of a thing. I wish it worked. And I'm looking for any ideas that you guys have that might help me, because we don't know everything, even after 55 years. There's a lot of things we don't know. Going back to Thomas Edison, if you will, one of my favorite quotations from Thomas Edison is this. Even though he was a great inventor, he said, we don't know one millionth of one percent of anything. There's, there's so much yet to be discovered. In the 1890s, Congress actually came very close to doing away with the patent office because they said at that time there was nothing left to be invented. You remember that? <laughs> well, guess what? The government is never wrong. <laughs> Some of you got that, didn't you? All right, with that in mind, I'm gonna turn it over to my son, Al, who knows what's going on right now, and then I'm gonna finish it up if we have time. We'll hear from Alex in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Copperhead Ag. This week, we're talking to sales manager, Jake Jass, about the company, new products they're offering, and how the Furrow Cruiser can benefit no-tillers this planting season. Jake, thanks for joining us. First, can you tell us a little about the company and how it got started? Sure, well, Copperhead was started by a farmer and an engineer. Um, farm family was having a hard time uh, getting their seed trench closed in the spring and saw some other products on the market and thought that they could do a better job, that they could figure out a way to make it work better. Because there were situations where those products were good, but they also kind of had um, functional flaws. So they brought that product to an engineer with some farm background. And so you see how this goes. The engineer gets together with the farmer. Uh, they put common sense together and make a product that's um, a good product. They give it to their family. They give it to their friends. They run it for a season. Everything's going great. And it's basically just built from there. Uh, but that was eight years ago uh, when the company started. I've been with the company for five years now. Um, and it's just continually uh, grown with that kind of uh, homegrown ingenuity. In addition to the furrow cruisers, what is Copperhead Ag currently offering? So for right now, you know, we still remain uh, pretty planter focused. Um, we've also uh, went into the drill line. We've got a closing wheel for a John Deere uh, 60 or 90 series drill or air seeder. Um, and that's a similar product to the furrow cruiser. It's called the drill cruiser. It's a cast iron closing wheel. Uh, so we've got that for the drill market. We also have now uh, just launched a brand new product called the Cruiser Extreme. The Cruiser Extreme is a full cast iron closing wheel. Um, it's a lot heavier than the Furrow Cruiser and it's meant for, like the name implies, a little bit more extreme environment. Guys that are dealing with uh, tough wet no-till cover crops uh, where they're just having to run a lot of down pressure on their tailpiece that cast iron really fits well there because they have the, the weight inherent in the wheel. And so you don't need to crank on your down pressure to get the closing wheel in the ground. 
Um, that's new for this year. This will be our third season of running them, but th that's brand new for this year. So we're really excited there. Um, and then we've also recently partnered with Sunco products and uh, we're now offering their row cleaners. Uh, they've got some fertilizer, uh, two by two application. They've got some uh, planter hitch drawbar type things. So um, as you can see, most of our products are focused on the spring, focused on planting, getting seed in the ground and doing that in an efficient um, manner that's making you the best yields, uh, saving the most money on wear parts, etc. So just trying to help the farmers do better as good as we can. Can you talk about how your products benefit no-tillers? So the no-till farmer more than anyone has to deal with varying conditions. They might have a place where they have to work one spring for various reasons. They might have a place where um, they've got low spots where they have to deal with extra moisture, they have to deal with extra residue cover, uh, there's just more variance in, in my mind, in a no-till field. And so having products like ours, like the Furrow Cruiser, that has a combination of qualities that allows it to run in varying conditions with very little change, um, basically what we're doing is, is making it easier for a farmer to go plant and know that he's doing a great job. And when you know how important that planting season is and how few planting seasons you actually get in your life. You want to do that as good as you can every time. And so, you know, to us, being able to help them deal with those varied conditions and get the best stand and the best um, emergence possible, that all leads up to the best yield and that's going to help put money in the bank. So. Thank you, Jake, for taking the time to speak with us and to Copperhead Ag for sponsoring this episode. For more information on Copperhead, visit copperheadag.com. Jake says that even if you're not running their closing wheels, if you're having a problem with a seed trench issue, they're happy to serve as a resource to bounce ideas off of or answer any questions you may have. Their cell phone numbers are listed on the website, so feel free to contact Jake and others in the company to talk to them directly. And remember, if you'd like to purchase a set of furrow cruisers, be sure to enter the special code podcast at copperheadag.com. That's special code podcast at copperheadag.com. Now let's hear from Alex about some of the experiments they've tried over the years and the challenges they face on their operation. Good morning, how is everyone? Good. I don't know if I know what's going on. I'm going to back up one slide just to comment on this. While the Swather era was well before my time, my earliest memories are playing on the Swather in games of hide-and-go-seek. The concept still proves true. It reminds me of the proverb in the Bible that says, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Each idea has merit. There's something to be said for trying and for experimenting and for moving on. And that's what we're in the middle of. We have tried lots of different things over the years. And we are huge believers in on-farm tests. And um, we're huge believers in using the yield monitor on the combine and testing everything that we can think of to test to figure out exactly what will work and what to repeat next year. Now, I know it's not a perfect system, especially I think some of the ag leader guys may come forward and say, I don't put too much confidence in this, put a little bit. 
but there's something to be said for having a benchmark and a guideline to go by. This was a test we did in 2011, um, ammonium thiosulfate. We did several tests, several replications, and I don't think it'll be repeated, at least not until we learn something else about the system on our farm. So much variation in soil type and nutrient level, we moved on from that. By the way, a perfect system is one that has no error in it. So if any of you guys have a perfect system for testing, let us know what it is. <laughs> Another test we ran accidentally is, I don't think this is showing up quite as well on the slide as I'd hoped it would, but this was a mechanical test showing some serious problems with straw chopper and spreading, and you can pick out some blank spots in our double crop bean fields from this past summer. So we're looking forward to branching out and making some changes on that one. Some of the challenges are not mechanical and they're not nutrient oriented, but they're environmental factors. This was a brief presentation that we put together just this past summer to show to some people about how much yield loss we're actually looking at around all of our tree lines. Um, on this particular field, we were looking at about a 40 bushel loss on corn, a nine bushel loss on soybeans. You need to come in and figure out how can you balance having what you need there and what can you take out and adjust. When you have irregularly shaped fields like we do in western Kentucky, it's a constant challenge. This 25-acre field is divided by two ditches and a patch of woods. It used to be three ditches and a patch of woods, and Dad said that half acre was no longer worth claiming, so we put it into trees through NRCS, and we're down to this one. But it's a constant challenge, not just in yield, but in production, management, stewardship, and slopes. Technology changes not just electronic, but mechanically speaking. This planter on the right of the slide is the Alice Chalmers planter that Dad had, and then out here in the Grand Suites in the No-Till Museum, they've got a picture of my grandfather standing next to it. Um, I think it was a Purdue University study that came down and did that. Now, what's the difference between the old planter on the right and the new planter on the left? There's a whole lot up front but what comes out the back and in the ground is what we're all striving for, and we hope that there's no huge difference there. I put in this just for all you guys who are pro-corn fungicide. This is one of the few maps that we tested that actually showed a good return on some dryland corn there. But unfortunately, most of them look like this, either no difference or even sometimes a yield hit, and it's one of those things that we're continuing to experiment on. We've seen great results in wheat and soybeans, but we're just not seeing it in corn in our no-till system. Two things I want to point out in this picture. I thought some of you guys would be interested in which sprayer we run. We have a John Deere 4730, have 15-inch centers on it, 800-gallon tank, 100-foot boom, and we put that over a lot of acres, and we map a lot of data with that thing. The tanker in the background, I don't have a better picture of, but that is probably the best eBay purchase that my father has ever made. <laughs> we pumped a lot of gallons through that thing. Uh, we've tried lots of different experiments. This is another test plot from this summer of treated and non-treated on some southern states, 4.7 beans. And it's one of those, again, that we're not gonna be repeating. This is what our data implementation team looks like. We've got a sprayer, a GPS, a well-selected hybrid for the soil type or variety, and a center pivot irrigator. I think I skipped a page in my notes here. Let's jump ahead to another thing that we haven't test. We have lots of people come by and say, test our product, we wanna do this. 
and we are just constantly running as many trials as we can through the fields and still trying to get our work done. I'm buzzing through a whole lot of maps here, but the theme is the same. There are things that we're guaranteed that will work. You go to a, not just a conference, but go to a seminar, sit down with an agronomist, and they say, this is going to work. And we take it home, we try it, and it doesn't work. <laughs> For us, fertigation on corn is one of the things that we are still playing with and just not seeing the results that some of the studies say we should be getting. So we're learning on that one. Another thing is uh, no-till ripping. I don't want to ruffle any feathers here, but if you look at all of the neighbors and listen to everybody in our area, it's an obvious thing that works. Every time we put it to a yield map, we're not seeing a response. Be interested to hear some feedback on that in our water management seminar that we're going to do tomorrow. In the end, this graph is what we're striving for. This is not showing up as well on the slide. I just grabbed it last minute, threw it in the presentation. But this is one that we put together for some people this summer. And this is eight years of soil test data. And it shows a steady increase in our organic matter. When dad was young and starting in on his farming career, organic matter was well below even our benchmark level here at the beginning. And we've seen a nice steady increase over the years. Again, there's no perfect system but that's what we have to go by. The picture in the lower right just gives you an idea of some of the challenges that we have in our soil types. Heavy red clay here, I couldn't fit one in of all the rocks that we have, but that is a man-made hole that shows some of the challenges with our soil. In the next side, there is a naturally made hole that shows some topographic challenges that we have in our area. <laughs> There are always challenges, always things to overcome. And by the way, this is a really good test for the health of the sprayer driver, too. Test your heart and your blood pressure. <laughs> Dad, I'm going to turn it back over to you. We're going to jump for the future here. Okay. Well, let's, let's look at some of the controversial issues in no tillage. This is, remember I told you at the first that we're not going to agree on everything? Well, these are some of the things that we're not going to agree on. Um, let's start with a tough one. No tillage and climate change. There's a lot of studies been made of showing just how much the climate has changed over the last 40 years. But I'm a firm believer in the fact that climate has always changed and will continue to change. There's also been studies in recent past showing that the science is settled on climate change. And in my opinion, the science is not settled. It's still out. In fact, one of the smartest ladies I ever met teaches middle school science just north of Atlanta, Georgia. Just after Al Gore came out with his inconvenient truth, she watched that and said, you know, that just doesn't add up. So she sat down for her colleagues and made a presentation of the, several, of the seven different logical fallacies that were made in that presentation. She did a good job. I'm not biased just because she's my sister. <laughs> I'm biased because I think it was the truth. Just to give you one example, just, just a tip of the iceberg, so to speak, with no polar bears on it. The difference between accuracy and precision was never pointed out. You can say that 2 plus 2 equals 4, 
which is true, you can say that it equals 3.99999, and that's very precise. But if you say 2 plus 2 equals 5, you are inaccurate. That film featured lots and lots about the precision of the equipment that was used, but talked very little about the accuracy of it. Just one other thing for you to think on. I'm not going to spend all morning or the next 15 minutes on this at all. But where the government, which is never wrong, pointed out that carbon dioxide is a pollutant, my corn plants thinks it's fertilizer. They love carbon dioxide. In fact, if you ever go to someone who does greenhouses, whether it's in tobacco plants or hanging gardens or whatever you want, the carbon dioxide levels in the air that are used to maximize the potential in the greenhouse is quite a bit higher than what we have in the atmosphere now. Just something to think about. Not a lecture on climate change, but just to let you know that while there are believers and there are skeptics and there are deniers, I, for one, am somewhere in the skeptic leaning toward denier. We don't have to agree on that, but it's something to think about. Next question is, why in the world, since no-till is such a good idea and has proven to be a good idea, why does everybody not do it? Well, I got three answers for you. And it all comes from real life. One answer is that we're just creatures of habit. Now, you guys are smart. I mean, there are no dumb farmers left in the country because they were all weeded out in the 1980s. <laughs> so, in fact, Dr. Longemeyer from Purdue has said that the no-till farmers are 12% more efficient when all costs are included than their neighbors who are conventional tillers. So you're 12% better right off the bat. But we still are creatures of habit, even those of us who are no-tillers. The way I found this out was that we put up a new clock in our kitchen. I don't know, if you go into your kitchen, you have somewhere that you have a clock, and you look at the wall every time you come in to see what time it is. Well, my wife decided it was time to change the clock from this wall to that wall. That was a year ago. I still walk into the kitchen and look at that wall to see what time it is, and I think, oh yeah, it's over here. We're creatures of habit. We do the same thing over and over again unless there is some reason to change. And then it still takes us a while to get used to the new way of doing things. Second reason that not everybody does it is a direct quotation from a very intelligent, nice young farmer who's a neighbor of ours who rips the ground in between his double crop soybean harvest and his corn planting the next spring. So Al asked him, why do you do it? Yes, our, our yields have shown that there's no advantage to it. All the neighbors do it, of course, but why do you do it? He said, well, you know, at, at that time of the year, I just don't have anything else to do. <laughs> That's a direct quotation, right? So that is one reason. But I think maybe getting down to the, to the meat and potatoes of it, the third reason maybe strikes closer to home, and that is that it takes more management with no tillage. You can't just send a minimum wage guy out on a half million dollar tractor to run up and down the row and expect to have the same results as you would if you had him behind or pulling a disc or a plow or something like that. You've got to actually pay attention to what's going on. So creatures of habit, nothing else to do, and the fact that it takes more management.
there are a number of things that I would like to know. I would like to be able to do differently than we're doing now. Now, as you may have picked up as we're going through these things, um, we have a corn followed by wheat followed by double crop soybean rotation. We stick pretty closely to that rotation simply because we don't know what the prices are going to do. And even though wheat price is horrible right now, so is corn. The beans are average. But by the time harvest rolls around, it may very well be that the wheat is more profitable than we think it is now. What I would love to be able to do is to have something that grows on the ground between soybean harvest, which is well past the first killing frost, before we plant corn the next spring, and to be able to cut it and sell it. I hear silence. <laughs> I haven't found anything either, and I'm looking. I know all about cover crops, and we have a number of different cover crop trials. In fact, I guess for the purpose of cover cropping, we've been doing it for 53 years. Wheat, we call our cover crop wheat. We plant it after the corn, and we plant beans after it the next summer. But for that winter period between, let's say, the middle of October of one year after we cut beans, and the April the 1st when the crop insurance allows us to get in and plant corn, I would love to have something that grows and can be sold. To me, that would be a perfect system. And if any of you guys can buttonhole me afterwards and tell me what you found, I would really like to know it. Another thing that I would really like to do to improve our system, and that is on the outside two or three rows of every one of our fields, we have skips in the population. I have finally convinced myself that it's voles, V-O-L-E-S. I thought we were putting the corn in the trench where the anhydrous went, so we'd well, I, mean, I, I thought it was a lot of different things. But I would love to find a volicide, if you will, or something that will change that outside two or three rows that we have trouble with. So as you see me or Al, either one, in the halls over the next two or three days, tell us what you're doing. Because you guys probably have some of those ideas that Thomas Edison was talking about. You've got a good imagination and a pile of junk so you can be a good inventor. Okay. Got a few minutes for some questions here. Uh, just, just one comment. Uh, when you started off, you said there were three things, three places no-till wouldn't work. Yes, sir. I, I hate to correct you, but I That's will okay. anyway. Uh, I agree with the rocks and I agree with the water. I don't agree with the ice and snow. We do it every spring. We plant peas and barley. We frost seed them into frozen surface. So you can modify that a little bit. I wouldn't do it in January, but I, we do do it in March. That's an excellent point. By the way, my grandfather did the same thing. On the last frost, he would go out with a hand seeder and he would put down legumes in the wheat as a means of getting it somehow freezing and thawing worked into the ground. So he did the same thing. I was thinking of corn. <laughs> and, you know, you do that also. We've had snow fall on corn after it was planted, but I've never been gutsy enough to go out and plant it in the snow. But that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Alex, you've seen your grandfather and your dad manage residue and learn how to no-till. You're obviously today in charge of managing the residue. And, and from a no-tiller's point of view, residue seems to be one of our biggest obstacles. As yields continue to increase and with rotations, the level of residue that we deal with every year continues to increase. 
Give us a little bit about what you saw, what you're doing, and what do you think you're going to do in the future with uh, managing residue? Yeah, boy, that's a big question, a long answer, and I'll keep it short because that's where my knowledge is. <laughs> We're definitely going to evaluate straw choppers. That is on the short list, probably the 60-day list, so that when we go into our wheat in June, we're looking at that. We're a pretty big fan of the row cleaners, and the, of course, spiked closing wheel isn't exactly row cleaners. I don't know if you want to get into that, Dad, on the closing wheels. If we have time. But if you can get, of course, good seed soil contact and somehow get the residue back you know, that is ideal. So is that answering your question? That's an awfully short answer to a big question there, but okay. Thanks, Mr. Coleman. And uh, Marion, uh, just to back up a few years, when we had 20-foot headers, it was no problem. Yeah. But when you went to 40 and 45-foot headers, it's difficult for the chopper to spread it evenly over that width. And that's one reason we just traded for a different brand of combine. I need to talk with Phil Needham. Last time I was here, he was talking about choppers that would actually do that job and spread it uniformly, chop the straw, especially in the wheat up, and that is a big item. I need to talk with him. So if I don't see you, Phil, if you're around, talk to me before the meeting's over. Thank you for asking that. That's important. Yeah. yeah. As a uh, first-time no-tiller this year and first-time attendee, what would be your bit of advice that you could give me after 55 years of experience? It's a good question. I would recommend talking to your neighbors who have done it. If they haven't done it, find somebody who has. You probably are in the center of the elite right here. So just hunt somebody up and say what worked, what didn't work, what kind of planter should I use, what should I add to my planter. Uh, if you've already got a line of machinery for no tillage, then maybe small tweaking will do. Um, that's the best advice I can give you. Yes, sir. Uh, you said that uh, wheat was your only cover crop, but you treated it as a cover crop even though it's a cash crop. You're not doing anything on your bean stubble or even your wheat stubble uh, to have a growing crop, a growing cover crop out there? We have right now, we have uh, Austrian winter peas growing, and we had um, tillage radishes, daikon radishes growing. Uh, unfortunately, at the late date that we harvest beans, they just don't get very much growth on them before the winter closes in. So we're still looking. The, um, we do not have the proper cover crop between our soybean harvest and our corn planting the next spring. You say you don't have time to put in a cover crop. Why don't you go to a shorter season bean? The highest yield we can get from beans are the ones that takes the most advantage of the daylight that we have before the frosts close in. For our area, that's a 4.3 to 4.9 uh, maturity range. If we cut it back much below that, we start losing yield on soybeans. And we're just you know, eliminating the whole purpose of having it, which is to make a profit. By the way, I didn't mention the four Ps, which is the very title of this presentation. <laughs> An unprofitable farmer will soon be a former farmer. You've got to make a profit or it's not worth it. The second thing was production. If you don't have a stalk growing out there, you're not going to make the production, which means you can't sell it, which means you have to go find something else to do for a living. Progeny is the next generation. I'm very thankful for Alexander. We have five surviving children. Alexander is the one who is back on the farm right now. And posterity is for people we've never met yet, people who are going to take over the land after we're forgotten. They won't even know who we are, hardly. So those four things are very important, just I didn't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you to John and Alex Young for sharing the history of no-till on their farm and the experiences they've gone through. If you'd like to view any of the PowerPoint slides they presented at the conference, go to notillfarmer.com and click on Podcasts under the Resources tab. There you'll find a link to this episode where the presentation will be made available. And if you're interested in learning more about the Youngs and the history of no-till, editor Frank Lusseter is producing a special coffee table book this year on the practice. Titled From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming, the book will include more than 200 pages of personal stories, photos, and the individuals and equipment that have influenced the practice. To learn more about the book or to place an order, visit notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. That's notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Copperhead Ag, for making this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I look forward to your feedback on today's episode, so please feel free to drop me an email at lbarrera at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For John and Alex Young, Copperhead Ag, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Lara Barrera. Thanks for listening.